my advice is to treat work more transactionally. And that might sound a little crass, you know, especially because we've been told that jobs are meant to be vocations and callings and identities. But as we've seen in the past few years, employers already treat work transactionally. You know, they hire employees when they add value and fire employees when they don't. And I actually think that a more transactional approach to work would benefit both employers and employees. Employers will be able to set expectations of what good work looks like and to be very clear about them. And employees will, for example, be able to talk about things like compensation without thinking that it is against the company's best interest. And more importantly, they'll be able to treat work as part of, but not the entirety of who they are. Hey everyone, this is Ashley Menzies Bavatunde, your host and resident storyteller, and welcome to another episode of No Straight Path, the highs, the lows, and the lessons learned. No Straight Path is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. We are digging into the human stories behind success, and my hope, as always, is that you leave the conversation inspired, motivated, and excited about your journey. Hey friends, I hope you're having a great week. We have another wonderful guest for today's conversation, Simone Stolzoff. And I have to admit that Simone wrote the book I wanted to write. Yes, he eloquently articulated all the thoughts in my head and much more in his book called The Good Enough Job Reclaiming Life from Work, and it is excellent. I read it in a few days, and he explores several topics that are just so important to me. And I know many of these topics are also important to you as listeners of No Straight Path. The book follows Simone's journey to understand this particularly American pathology defined by economic and cultural systems in which productivity is a measure of moral good. Drawing on more than a hundred interviews with Michelin star chefs, Wall Street bankers, overwhelmed teachers, and other laborers across the American economy, he found that while many feel overworked and underpaid, we are obsessed with our work, seeking from our jobs the community, meaning, and purpose we once sought from religion. It is an investigation and a cultural critique about why work has become so central to our identities and a call to separate our self-worth from our output. Speaking of separating our self-worth from our output, I wanted to let you all know that we are going to take a two-week break from the podcast. Simone's work inspired me. I am taking some more time to rest and spend with my family, but we will be back with new episodes starting June 14th, so stay tuned for that. All right, before we jump into this interesting conversation, I do want to tell you a bit more about Simone Stolzoff. He's an author, designer, and workplace expert from San Francisco. As a former design lead at the global innovation firm IDEO, he regularly works with leaders from the Surgeon General of the United States to the Chief Talent Officer at Google on how to make the workplace more human-centered. His work has been featured in the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic, and many other publications. He is a graduate of Stanford and the University of Pennsylvania, but more importantly, he is an interesting human doing very meaningful work. I think y'all are going to love this conversation, so let's get to it. I am so excited to have Simone on the podcast today. I am already halfway through your book. I find it so interesting. Thank you so much for joining us on No Straight Path. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. 
Absolutely. So before we get to the work that you are doing right now and today, I'd love to just start from the beginning and learn a little bit just about you and your childhood and how you grew up. Yeah. So I grew up in San Francisco. And I had four parents. My parents got divorced when I was young and then both remarried. And so I had sort of four models of what work looked like from their perspective. Both of my biological parents are psychologists, which makes me kind of example A. And then my stepmom is a lawyer. And then my stepdad is a music presenter. So I had sort of these four potential paths. And like many millennials that grew up with some privilege, I was told basically that I could be whoever I wanted when I grew up. I was encouraged to follow my passion and pursue these different paths. And then in college, I studied poetry and economics, which set up this sort of tension between the world of commerce and the world of art. And there was lots of turmoil that existed and a meandering path that went from there. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Okay. So poetry and economics. Yeah, there's certainly a tension there. So I want to know also about your personality Hmm. growing up. So how would your family describe you? Little Simone. (laughs) Yeah, I'd say I was a pretty excitable kid. I had a short attention span, but I was like very enthusiastic into whatever I was doing. Growing up, I was really into sports and and writing. There's sort of like a kind of lore in my family that in the second grade, I skipped my brother's birthday party so I could go to writer's workshop, which was like my favorite period of the day, which (laughs) might be an early precursor to the career I'm in now. But I think in general, you know, my friends and and sports were the most exciting part of my life. And then I also, growing up as an only child and then with different siblings at different moments, I spent a lot of time around adults. And so I was always kind of a question asker and a little bit precocious trying to like be at the, the adult's table as opposed to the kid's table. Yeah, yeah. I can certainly relate. Another only child over here with parents telling me I can pursue my passions. So... <laughs> I'd love to know about the tension and how you navigated the poetry versus the economics and what you ultimately decided to do. Tell us about that journey to journalism, I guess would be your first career. Yeah, yeah. I've had a few. I'm in my mid-30s, but I've already worked in kind of four or five different industries, all the while trying to find a vocational soulmate, you know, that that dream job that allowed me to self-actualize. But I think in the early days, you know, writing was always my passion, but I also tried to optimize for optionality. And so I was basically taking as many classes in college so that I could potentially go to law school, potentially go into something in the business world, potentially pursue something artistic. But writing was really my main hobby. In college, my main extracurricular activity was spoken word poetry. So I was very into sort of the slam and spoken word poetry worlds. And so when I started looking for internships, I I worked as a summer camp counselor for my first two summers. And then junior year of college, I started looking for a job and trying to find a career. I saw this word copywriter start to pop up. And I was watching Mad Men at the time and thought maybe copywriting could be something for me. To be honest, at first I thought it had to do with copyrights, you know, something (laughs) in like intellectual property, but then eventually kind of found the world of advertising. And so my first internship was at an ad agency in New York City. And then when I came back 
to California. That's when I started working in advertising first. And so I had sort of like a meandering 20s. I worked in advertising for a few years and I worked in tech. And then eventually I went back to school and studied journalism and worked as a staff writer at a few publications. And eventually I made my way to design, which uh, that was sort of maybe that first inflection point that started me thinking about, wow, how did my identity become so wrapped up in my career? And that kind of research around that question is really what inspired the book. Yeah, yeah. So can you tell us a little bit more about that, about that pivot from journalism to design and what actually sparked that question? What you know, what was going on internally or perhaps even externally at that time? Yeah, I mean, I remember it so vividly. So I was working for this kind of trendy national publication that was based in New York City. You know, as I mentioned, it was a pivot to get into journalism in the first place. And so I had finally sort of like landed in this career. And then a recruiter from this design agency called IDEO reached out to me. I'd heard about IDEO. Um, it was sort of one of those companies that I was always curious about what it would be like to work there. And never turned down a conversation or an interview. I decided to like take the call and went through the hiring process without fully sort of thinking about whether it was something that I wanted to do. And then at the end, I had these two potential paths. You know, there was this fork in the road. One was to continue working in journalism. The other was to leave and try something new at a, a shiny company in the Bay Area. And it really threw me for a loop. You know, at this fork in the road, I couldn't decide which to choose for the life of me. I asked everyone that I could about it and, and my Uber driver and my yoga teacher, you know, trying to get some wisdom into which path to choose. And, you know, I think really on one hand, it's like, oh, you know, woe is me, the the plight of having to choose between two attractive job offers. But on the other hand, it really was personal. You know, my work wasn't just something that I did. It was in large part who I was and the lens through which I saw the world. And it didn't feel like I was choosing between two jobs as much as it felt like it was I was choosing between two versions of me. And mm. that led to a lot of sort of existential angst. And even though I ended up leaving journalism and, and pursuing design, my first few months in the job, I was very much sort of in my own head about whether I made the right decision or not, or whether, you know, my former colleagues will think that I sold out or I'll ever be able to write something ever again. You know, fast forward, leaving the formal journalism industry is probably the best thing that's happened to my writing career. But it's very easy to see that in retrospect. And in the moment, I was so convinced that I had burned a bridge or that I was making a decision that I could never course correct on. Yeah, yeah. Two things. So many things you've said there. The first thing is you said you would be picking two versions, between two versions of yourself. And I think a lot of millennials think that way. And I am curious about where you think that came from. Was that societal pressure? Was that your family? You got to see four different work styles. Nature, nurture. Tell us about what do you think made you think that way? Yeah, I'm reminded of that famous quote of like, I was a soldier so that my son could be an engineer so that his son could be a poet. And it just reminds me of sort of like the expectations or the the freedom that I was afforded in my life growing up with a certain level of options. You know, even the question, what do you want to do 
is a question that necessitates a certain level of privilege to be able to ask. But thankfully, yeah. you know, I was always told that I could do whatever I wanted. It was also sort of in that age around the early 2000s as I was starting to find my professional footing that Steve Jobs was proselytizing about, you know, doing what you love and saying that's the only way to do great work and you shouldn't settle. You should continue to pursue a dream job. It was in the age of sort of the romanticization of tech and these entrepreneurs and these CEOs that became celebrities and the sort of we work generation where always do what you love was plastered on the side of our co-working spaces. And I really internalized that. You know, there's that famous quote from Annie Dillard, how we spend our days is how we spend our lives. And I really took that to heart. I thought that my chosen work would be the most consequential decision I ever made. And, you know, I think there is some truth in that. You know, we work more than we do just about anything else, more than we see our friends, more than we see our family. But I think what I came to realize and sort of the central message of the book is that there's a risk in treating your work as your sole source of identity or your sole source of meaning or purpose or community. Mm. It's something that so many people have found out in the last few years due to the pandemic. You know, everyone's job changed to some extent. And for those who were looking to work to help them self-actualize, it was a very sort of narrow platform to be balancing on. Yeah, no, that's so true. And it's such a timely book. And so you said one other thing that I do want to follow up on is leaving journalism actually was the best thing that could happen to your writing career. Can you tell us what you mean by that? Yeah. You know, when you're a news reporter and you're following the news cycle and I was publishing basically daily another article. It didn't give me much space to think more broadly about the types of stories that I wanted to be telling or to pursue more ambitious editorial projects. And so when I left working as a staff writer to join IDEO, I had some space in my kind of writerly brain. I still had a job that I was going to from nine to five, but I wasn't necessarily expending all of my writing energy in that job. And it allowed me to kind of take a step back and think about, okay, like I don't want these writing muscles to atrophy. What can I do in order to keep myself, you know, thinking in the way that I loved thinking as a journalist, that sort of lens of curiosity through which I could see the world. And so I started freelancing and I wrote some of the magazine stories I'm, I'm most proud of for you know places like The Atlantic and Wired. And then the book was sort of born out of that idea of, okay, if I want to keep writing, what is something that I can really sink my teeth into? And you know, a book is a multi-year process. It takes a lot of time. And it was actually by having this job where I wasn't writing a thousand words a day that allowed me the kind of mental energy, time, and space to be able to also pursue this job. And I understand there's a little bit of irony there. You know, the book, you know, the title is The Good Enough Job, Reclaiming Life from Work. It's fundamentally a book about how work has come to be so central to Americans' lives. And I was writing this book on the side of a full-time job. I took, you know, a few months of leave in order to finish it up. But I think that was sort of the, the healthy tension that I wanted to explore both within myself and within society. It's how do we pursue meaningful work without letting what we do for work subsume who we are. 
Yeah. Do you know how to answer that question? <laughs> well, <laughs> 200 pages later, I have a little bit more insight. But I, I mean, I definitely don't want to position myself as like the expert by any means. I think yeah. it is a constant question. And even people who seemingly have it all figured out, I'll tell you, you know, for the hundreds of workers that I talked to for the book, many of them are still wrestling with what they want their relationship to work to be. And I don't think that's a problem. You know, I don't think that there's this sort of static state of work-life balance or this sort of proverbial land where everything is figured out that once you reach, you just get to kind of sit back and relax. I think wrestling with work is, for lack of a better term, the, the work of our lives. You know, it is trying to figure out how we want to show up. And I think there will be seasons where we prioritize work and seasons where we prioritize life outside of work. But the point that I want to really drive home is that it's important to be intentional. It's important to think in terms of the choices that we're making and what those trade-offs are, because too often we just sort of become passive riders along the way of our careers. We think about what the, the market values and follow that light instead of actually considering what we ourselves value. And I think, you know, there's maybe some danger at either end if you are just following what the market values without considering what you yourself value. It can leave you in a place where maybe you're playing a game that you don't actually want to win or climbing a career ladder that you don't actually want to be on. But on the other end of the spectrum, if you're just pursuing what you value without considering what the market values, that can also leave you in a precarious position. If you, for mm -hmm. example, are taking on lots of student debt to pursue a graduate degree that won't actually lead to job prospects on the other end, or if you're an artist and you're so consumed by how you're going to pay rent that you can't actually focus on your art. And so I think the balance there is how do you hold those two things at the same time, considering what I value and what the market values, and try and find work that sits at their intersection. Yeah, yeah, no, that is the question that I feel like I struggle with daily in a position where it's the day job and the side hustle passion project. And I'm just curious about that inflection point for you when you decided to work on the book. So I actually didn't realize you were writing the book alongside working as a designer. So was there something in your life that sparked this? Tell us about that story. Yeah, I mean, I think there were a few different points of entry. One was as a reporter, when I was working in journalism, my beat was always labor. And so I was covering work as a topic, both at the sort of labor market economy-wide level, as well as covering individual companies and sort of their approach to work and management. And the second is that personal struggle of me trying to figure out what role I wanted work to play in my own life. You know, the cliche is that you write the book that you need to read, you know, and so I wanted to do this investigation, maybe similar to you, because this was something that I had thought about a lot and struggled with. And I think through the stories of the, the people I profile in the book, I gleaned a lot more insight into my own relationship to work. And that's sort of my goal for the readers as well, is by reading these stories and, and the research that I reflect in the book, it can help you think about what role you want work to play in your life. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And was there anything in your research that just stuck with you that was particularly interesting or surprising? 
Yeah, I mean, lots of it. I think each chapter has sort of a, a different theme. So the form of the book is that in each chapter, I profile a different character. So there's you know, a Michelin star chef and a librarian and a Wall Street banker and a software engineer at Google who lives in a van in the Google parking lot, You know, all of these sort of eccentric characters. But then with each character, each chapter also has a broader theme. So there's a chapter about work and identity. There's a chapter about work and status. There's a chapter about work and the office, You know, where we work. I think one that sticks out to me is this concept from chapter three, which is about you know, a librarian, this woman named Fobazi Itar, who is also sort of indicative of uh, the experience of lots of people who work in what I'd call like do-gooder industries. So things like nonprofits or healthcare or education. Fobazi actually coined this term called vocational awe. And I, I love it so much. The vocational awe is the idea that certain industries or certain lines of work rely on the perceived righteousness of their field to obscure some of the malpractice or exploitation that exists within it. So that sounds like kind of an academic definition. But if you think about something like teaching, you know, my, my partner is an elementary school teacher. And often she'll receive messages like, you know, just put the kids first or just make do with what you have. Or if you think about the nonprofit sector, people were told things like, well, you know, it's about the cause. It's not about you. And, you know, what that rhetoric does is these industries have this kind of perceived righteousness, this, this halo effect that sits above them. And it covers up a lot of the problems that exist within them. It makes it seem like all problems in the field are the result of individual choices as opposed to structural problems that really need structural interventions. And so even just learning about this term and learning how it showed up for Fobazi and, and librarians and then thinking about, you know, during the pandemic, all of these workers that we deemed essential that we didn't actually give protection or fair compensation to, it just showed that kind of difference between how we tend to talk about some of these lines of work versus the ways in which these workers are treated. And so that research always sticks with me. And, and any sort of friend that works in a, a do-gooder field, I always tell them about this, and they tend to see their own experience reflected in the term as well. Yeah, no, definitely. I love that part of the book because I'm not in that kind of field and I've always coming at this research and at this from a, you know, knowledge worker, white collar perspective. And I had a friend of mine who's a teacher on the show a couple of months ago and he was just talking about those struggles and then I was doing some research just about how, you know, so many teachers and nurses and people in these as you call it do-gooder uh, professions are starting to leave the profession and we need those jobs. Do you have any thoughts about how systems can better support our humanity as workers? Yeah. I mean, I think there are things that exist at sort of the government and policy level and there are things that exist at the sort of individual company or organization level. And I think both are important to consider. I think one of the reasons why our relationship to work is so fraught in the U.S. is that the consequences of losing work are, are so dire when, for example, you know, our healthcare is tied to our employment. And so I think at, at the government level, if we had a more robust social safety net, 
it could help people leave jobs that were not good enough for them. You know, we saw this in, in during the pandemic where just like a modicum of social support from the government allowed people to find jobs and raise the standards for work for so many people across the economy. At the company level, you know, I think there are a lot of particular interventions and it sort of depends on the type of organization. The big one in my mind is making sure that organizations have enough people to do the work so that there isn't an undue burden placed on any one individual and that people's time off is protected, not by the individual, but by the employer. So often when we hear advice around sort of anti-burnout or trying to increase workplace well-being, the onus falls on the individual. We tell them things like, you know, just set a healthy boundary or or practice self-care. But that responsibility should lie on the employer. There should be systems in place that there is some slack if employees are on vacation, there are systems for other people to do the work. There should be expectations about when people are on and off the clock so that we're not consistently in this state of like a shark sleeping with one eye open, like always half working, even when we're technically out of the office. And so it really is about long-term sustainable productivity. I don't believe that these issues that we're talking about are necessary from uh, because you should perspective, although I think it is the right thing to do. I think there's a business case for it. And we're seeing that in some of the studies that are coming out about the four-day work week and other sort of progressive ways of treating employment. If you want to attract the best employees, if you want to retain the best employees, and if you want your employees not to burn out, you have to respect their lives in and out of the office, as opposed to the system that we're all too accustomed with in the U.S., which is people just work, work, work all the time until they can't anymore and they leave. Yeah, no, that's so true, all of that. And I'm so glad that you brought up the business case as well, because unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your perspective, we are in a capitalist society. And when you're advocating for something that is just good for humans, you do have to tie it to a business case. I noticed that just in my own work when I'm talking about DEI stuff or well-being. I always try to bring it back to the business case for it because ultimately we're working within these systems, if we're talking about corporations specifically, that are profit-generating models. And that's ultimately, unfortunately, what they care about. And you know, I want to figure out how we continue to center our humanity in these discussions. Mm. So I love that perspective and the work that you're doing. And speaking of the work that you're doing, what did you learn about yourself as you were doing this work? What did you learn about your relationship with work? Yeah. Tell us about that, perhaps this journey of self-discovery that you might've gone on while writing. Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. And I don't want to leave individuals off the hook either. You know, one of the things that I realized the process of reporting and writing and eventually, you know, I did leave my job at the design firm to finish up the book is that we've internalized a lot of the incentives of the capitalist world that we live in. You know, I was often my own worst micromanager, even in the period when I was working for myself, I sort of rose and fell with my professional accomplishments. And when I hit my writing goal for the week, I felt great. And when I didn't, I felt like a failure or I would work on the weekends just to try and make up the difference. 
And I think one thing that I learned is that work can be like a gas. It can sort of seep into all of the unoccupied space we allot for it. And so in order to cultivate other identities and other sources of meaning beyond what we do for a living, we have to have structural protections around our time. And then we have to fill that time with things other than work. You know, one of the benefits of going to, say, a, a yoga class or going on a run or meeting up with a friend is these are activities that have a certain level of accountability to not work built into them. And then the next step is after, you know, carving out that space is actually filling that space with things that are a reflection of your values. You know, I I'm sure this is relatable. It was certainly the case for me that when I was working in some of the most intense working environments I ever worked in, I would work and then I'd come home, um, maybe answer a few more emails. And then all I'd really have the energy to do was, you know, turn on Netflix and try and turn off my brain and then go to sleep. And then it just turned into the series of rinse and repeat days. You know, I think one of the things that we often don't acknowledge is that a work-centric existence often takes our best hours, but also our best energy as well. And if we want to have other identities, if we want to have other sources of meaning, we have to water them with our attention and our energy and our time. And so it's one thing to say, choose to conceive of yourself as more than just a worker. But if you want to put that into practice, you have to do other things besides work. You have to be spending time with the people that you care about. You have to be investing in your local community. You have to be finding communities of people that reinforce identities you have beyond just being an employee or a worker. Yeah, no, I love that. And it certainly relates to a lot of the discussions we've been having recently around just aligning your life with your values and redefining success for yourself. And that's something that I've been doing. And I noticed when I just started to just even reframe what a win is or what success is to me, as an example, just going to that yoga class. I don't do yoga, but what do I do? I do soca dance. I like to dance. I'm Caribbean. So I do soca dance. And I'm like, if I do my soca dance every day, that's actually a win. If I Mm. call my friend today, who I haven't talked to in a while, or just send them a text, that's a win. And before I would see that as wasted time, as a time away from my work, but that's actually adding value to my life. And so when I started to kind of look at my values and think about the things that I care about that are outside of work and pour into those things and still see them as winning, that really changed the game for me. And I am curious about who you are outside of work. How would you describe yourself? Yeah, it's a great question and one that I encourage everyone to ask themselves because it can be hard to answer, you know, especially here in the US where what you do is often the first question we ask each other when we meet. You know, it's hard to think about sometimes who we are when we're not on the clock or we don't have a job title that is legible to other people. I'm a proud Californian. I'm a San Francisco native. I'm Jewish. I feel connected to my Jewish identity. I am a sort of recreational athlete, and so I play pickup soccer, and I'm on an ultimate Frisbee team. I like to think of myself as a a generous friend or someone that can really show up for the people around me. 
And, you know, I, I really learned this lesson about the importance of defining ourselves by our evergreen characteristics by speaking with members of the sort of chronic illness community. There's one woman in particular, Liz Allen, who I spoke to, who was maybe, you know, your typical type A overachiever. She went to an Ivy League school and she was a D1 athlete at that school and then got a job at Teach for America that she really identified with and then ended up going to law school. But at the same time, she was struggling with a chronic illness related to Lyme disease. And sometimes she would wake up on days and not be able to get out of bed and not be able to move. Like her ability to be productive was not always in her control. So measuring your own self-worth based on your output in that sort of case is a, is a fool's errand. You know, it's something that really helps you redefine what is your value and what are your values outside of a capitalist structure. What Liz told me was when you can't necessarily rely on your ability to produce every day as a measure of the value you bring to the world, you have to think critically about what are other ways in which you bring value to the world and those around you? What are other ways in which you identify? And so it was through things like being generous with her time or being a very present listener that Liz started to think, conceive of her, her own identity. And through that, she was able to construct an identity that no company or boss or market had the power to affect which I think is also kind of good advice for people right now in this current economic climate and people dealing with layoffs and furloughs and all of the other points of turmoil in the past few years. What are the things that you can use to identify with that even if your job was taken away, even if you left your job, they would still be true to who you are? Yeah, no, I think that that's great advice. And Sometimes it takes some type of pivotal moment in your life to spark that reflection and some people don't have it and hopefully they read your book and start really thinking about these questions because it doesn't always need to take, you know, a layoff or a chronic illness or insert pivotal moment in life. You know, I think the culture is changing as you said, which is exciting. It's an exciting time. This is a timely topic. Do you have thoughts about the future in our relationship to work. I haven't finished the book yet. I know you do a bit of historical analysis and how this is a relatively new concept when we talk about the career being our passion. What kind of society do you envision when it comes to work and our relationships to work? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a few different ways to answer this question, depending on sort of the altitude at which we want to fly. At the sort of highest level, I think we need to move toward a society where our basic human needs are not directly tied to our employment status. And so I foresee a world where there are more protections for individuals, whether or not they are fully employed. At the individual level, I think we're having this sort of society-wide conversation right now about like what is work's role in our life. And on, on one end of the spectrum, you have sort of the folks that are anti-work or the quiet quitters or maybe the anti-capitalists. And the other end of the spectrum, you have sort of the 
the hustle heroes and the folks that say, you know, no one ever changes the world working less than 60 hours a week. And I think either end of the spectrum is a dangerous proposition. You know, I think one of my critiques of some of the anti-work movement is that there aren't really alternatives. Like you can be anti-capitalist and find maybe some realms of your life to express those values. But so as long as we live in a capitalist society, people still need to pay rent. And so my advice is to treat work more transactionally. And that might sound a little crass, you know, especially because we've been told that jobs are meant to be vocations and callings and identities. But as we've seen in the past few years, employers already treat work transactionally. You know, they hire employees when they add value and fire employees when they don't. And I actually think that a more transactional approach to work would benefit both employers and employees. Employers will be able to set expectations of what good work looks like and to be very clear about them. And employees will, for example, be able to talk about things like compensation without thinking that it is against the company's best interest. And more importantly, they'll be able to treat work as part of, but not the entirety of who they are. And so my sort of vision for the future is that individuals will start with their idea of what is a life well-lived and then think about how their work can support that vision. Because too often, I think it's the other way around, where people treat their job as sort of the central axis around which the rest of their life orbits, and then tries to try to squeeze life into the margins. But I think it's actually about being very clear about what is your version of kind of a rich work life or a rich life, and then how does work fit into that? Maybe it is making a little less money so that you can be able to have better hours that allow you to pick up your kids from school every day. Maybe it is moving to a place with a lower cost of living so the pressure to always be earning a lot of money is not so burdensome on your daily life. Or maybe it is, you know, trying to find that job that really feels like it's in alignment with your personality or an expression of who you uniquely are or working your way up the corporate ladder so that you can provide opportunities for your family. You know, why I called the book The Good Enough Job is because I think there's something really liberating about a framework that is subjective. You know, everyone's definition of good enough can be unique to them. Mm -hmm. Maybe for you, it's a job that pays a certain amount of money. And maybe for someone else, it's a job that gets off at three o'clock so they can pick up their kids from school every day. But regardless of what your definition of good enough is, I hope you recognize once you have it. Because then instead of thinking about what better options there could be out there, or if there is a job that is a little bit better or more of a dream job for you, you can convert some of that energy into your life outside of work and thinking about how you can take an active role and in investing in other aspects of who you are. Uh, yeah, I love that so much. That is such great advice. How do you define a good enough job for yourself yeah, I think, you know, the definition that I use is intentionally 
vague, which is I think a good enough job is a job that allows you to be the person that you want to be. And for me, I think it's really evolved over the course of even reporting and writing this book. Whereas in the past, I thought maybe I wanted to rise up the ranks of a company or manage a team or maybe even start my own thing. I think I've been channeling more of my ambition into other realms of my life. And so I want to be a community builder and I want to develop a relationship with my neighbors and hopefully live close to my friends. I want to be a present partner and present friend and maybe a present parent one day. And I think I really enjoyed the process of of writing and reporting. And so I think, you know, even my own aspirations for my own career have evolved. Whereas in the past, I thought maybe I wanted to write this book and then jump back into the corporate world. Now my North Star is trying to have autonomy over my own time and my own schedule and to be able to cultivate this craft of writing that I so love to do. And so I hope to write more books in the future. And I am using metrics like the fewest amount of meetings I can have in a week or the amount of time that I don't have to be in my email inbox or on Slack as sort of my new metrics of success. Oh, that's wonderful. It's a, I love that aspiration. And this has been such a fruitful, very thoughtful discussion. I appreciate you sharing your thoughts. I usually end the conversation with final thoughts. So if you have any, please share. Yeah. If there's one thing that I want people to take away, it's that you will benefit from diversifying the sources of meaning and identity in your life. You'll benefit as a worker and you'll benefit as a human too. You know, much as an investor benefits from diversifying the stocks in their portfolio, we too benefit from having diverse sources of identity and meaning. And the research backs this up. It shows that people with greater what they call self-aspects, you know, who have different sides to who they are, are not only more well-rounded people, but often better workers too. You can think about it in terms of resilience. If you know, something isn't going well in your work life, but you have other sources of identity and meaning, it can allow you to, to bounce back quicker. But I think on the other side of deprioritizing work is the idea that you can prioritize your life. And yes, work is an important part of life. And I've certainly gotten lifelong friends and a sense of accomplishment and all these other things. But at the end of the day, work is an economic contract. It's an exchange of your time and your labor for a paycheck. And the more clear-headed we can be about that, the better. Thank you for listening to another episode of No Straight Path, the highs, the lows, and the lessons learned. Remember to share the podcast with friends and family. And my hope is that these stories help you navigate your No Straight Path journey. If this content is adding value to your life, and I hope it is, please take a few minutes out of your day to rate the show and write a review. You can click the link in the show notes to write a review. It helps other listeners find the show, and I just really appreciate it. Have a lovely week, embrace the journey, and remember, you're not alone.